Hi everyone, once again welcome back to the Daily Gospel Exegesis podcast, where we look at the Gospel reading from today's Mass and we do an exegesis on it, meaning we look at what the original author was trying to convey to his original audience, and that's called looking at the literal sense, which for us as Catholics is something we should be doing whenever we start to look at a Bible passage. We always want to start with the literal sense, that's the Catholic teaching, Uh, But it's something that perhaps isn't talked about often enough, and that's the point of this podcast, to help you understand the literal sense of these words that we hear at Mass every day. Today's reading from the lectionary is from John, chapter 5, verse 1 to 3, and verse 5 to 16. There was a Jewish festival, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, at the sheep pool in Jerusalem, there is a building called Bethzatha in Hebrew, consisting of five porticos, and under these were crowds of sick people. Blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the water to move. One man there had an illness which had lasted 38 years, and when Jesus saw him lying there, and knew he had been in this condition for a long time, he said, Do you want to be well again? Sir, replied the sick man, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is disturbed, and while I am still on the way, someone else gets there before me. Jesus said, Get up, pick up your sleeping mat, and walk. The man was cured at once, and he picked up his mat and walked away. Now that day happened to be the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been cured, It is the Sabbath, you are not allowed to carry your sleeping mat. He replied, But the man who cured me told me, Pick up your mat and walk. They asked, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your mat and walk? The man had no idea who it was, since Jesus had disappeared into the crowd that filled the place. After a while, Jesus met him in the temple and said, Now you are well again. Be sure not to sin any more, or something worse may happen to you. The man went back and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had cured him. It was because he did things like this on the Sabbath that the Jews began to persecute Jesus. So we're at the start of John chapter 5 here, and verse 1 we learn that there was a Jewish festival. Now, John doesn't tell us which festival it is, so either he doesn't remember what it was, or more likely, he feels that his mostly Gentile audience doesn't need this information. They don't need to know what the Jewish festival was, just that it was a Jewish festival. And Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, presumably to attend this feast. Verse 2, at the sheep pool in Jerusalem, there is a building. Now, that's what our lectionary translation says. At the sheep pool in Jerusalem, there is a building. This is not the best translation. The words are a bit mixed up here. A more literal translation is this. There is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool. So, we're not talking about a building here. We're talking about a pool, which is near the sheep gate. Now, notice what uh, what John says here. There is a building or there is in Jerusalem, um, depending on which translation you look at, but it's in the present tense. There is this. So that indicates that at the time of John writing this passage, the pool still exists. 
And since the pool was basically destroyed in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, then that strongly suggests that John wrote this part, at least this part of his gospel, before 70 AD. That's, that hasn't been the majority opinion of a lot of scholars, because a lot of critical scholars these, day would say, these days would say John was written AD 90 or later. But there is some evidence within the gospel, and I think this is one of the bits of evidence, that might suggest that John was written earlier, particularly before the destruction of the temple. And there are some scholars who are coming around to this view. So the pool is called Bethzatha, or other translations have it as Bethesda. So the pool of the Bethesda. For many years, uh, sceptical scholars in the 20th century did not believe there was such a place. They weren't able to find the pool of Bethesda. They thought John had basically just made it up. But in recent times, lo and behold, they've uncovered it in Jerusalem. And you can go there and look at the ruins of the Bethesda pool today. So it was located close to the Temple Mount and the Antonia Fortress. So it was, according to John, it consists of five porticos. So it's kind of like a Roman design with lots of pillars. And the archaeological evidence suggests that this site, this Bethesda pool, actually had two adjoining pools. We don't know which one was called the Bethesda pool. And they had a shared wall between the two pools. Each of the pools was enclosed by colonnaded porticos. You can Google it to see what it probably looked like. The Pool of Bethesda. Verse 3. Under these were crowds of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the water to move. So all sorts of, well, probably the sickest of the sick were coming here in the hopes that they would be healed. So these Jews, or at least some of the Jews believed, as do lots of Christians today, that certain places in the world have healing power. And they believe that this pool in Jerusalem, the Pool of Bethesda, had that healing power. Now, that's verse 3. Our gospel reading today from the lectionary goes verse 1 to 3 and then verse 5 to 16. So, it takes out verse 4. And the reason for that is a lot of translation, sorry, a lot of uh, manuscripts don't have verse 4. There's only a couple of manuscripts that have verse 4. So, here's what verse 4 says in the manuscripts that do have it. For for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and troubled the water. Whoever stepped in first after the troubling of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So a very strange verse. It tells us that, according to John, or whoever wrote this passage, that they believed that an angel was literally stirring up these waters in the pool of Bethesda. And when people saw the water being stirred up, the first person to get in would be cured. So why isn't it in most manuscripts? It appears that what happened was it wasn't in the original Gospel of John, but then later a scribe added it it in because when we get to verse 7, which clearly was in the original, it sort of presupposes this information. In verse 7 it says, that only the person who gets there first gets healed. And so it seems like a scribe at some point in history felt it necessary to add in this background information about the angel, the fact that they believed an angel was stirring up the water. Now, because that's not in the original manuscript, as Catholics, we're free, you know, we're not bound to accept this particular verse. We don't have to say that verse is inspired. But it would certainly fit with Catholic teaching that certain shrines, certain places in the world, do have the power to heal, and the most famous of those is Lourdes. Lots of people believe that, uh, in fact, lots of people have been healed by going into the water that's at Lourdes. 
And there's even reports today that there are some places in the world where angels have repeatedly, uh, reportedly visited certain people and the angels have said, if you give these rocks from, from this cave to people, because I have stepped foot in this cave, then these rocks will give healing to people. You've probably um, heard of um, a couple of examples of that, where there are rocks in circulation around the world from places where angels have appeared, from caves where angels have been, and apparently those rocks do have healing powers. So it's not a stretch to believe that there was an angel associated with this particular pool, and it was the angel was giving it healing powers every now and then. But it is a matter of debate for Catholics. Verse 5, we're introduced to a man who had an illness which had lasted 38 years. And from what we discover later, it's some sort of illness that makes him unable to walk. So he's probably paralyzed for 38 years. The fact that John mentions 38 years is strong evidence that this is coming from an eyewitness. Otherwise, how else would they know the exact number of years? Some scholars have thought that maybe there's some symbolism to the number 38, but it's probably more likely just John telling us how long he's had it for. Verse 6, so Jesus sees this man, he realizes that he's been there a long time, and he asks the man, do you want to be well again? Now Jesus, being the son of God, would already know the answer to this. Yes, he wants to be well again, but he wants the man to freely ask for healing. He wants the man to participate in his own healing, and that's the way Jesus operates. He never heals without involving the person in some way. Verse 7, the man replies, sir, or in Greek, kyrios, And that's the same word which the woman at the well and the court official have both used earlier in the Gospel of John. And then he tells Jesus that he's been trying to get into the pool to be healed, but someone always beats him there. So we learn that every time the water is disturbed, someone beats him to it, and only the first person to get into the water is the one that's healed. So it's a very strange kind of sacramental setup here. So who knows how long the man's been waiting for. It could have been years and years that he's been at this pond, hoping that he's the first one to get in, but someone always beats him to it. Apparently, he even sleeps there because he has a sleeping mat with him. His reply here sounds pretty desperate. So remember, Jesus' question to him was, do you want to be well again? And this is his response. So he's basically saying to Jesus, of course, I want to be healed, but I'm trying and it just doesn't seem to be possible. I can't get to the pool in time. So Jesus, hearing these words, says in verse 8, Get up, pick up your sleeping mat, and walk. So it's a very strong language there. That's a command. And as soon as Jesus gives the command, it brings about instantaneous healing for the man. Now, these are the same words Jesus uses elsewhere in the Gospels for paralyzed men, particularly uh, the scene in Mark chapter 2, where the paralyzed man gets lowered through the roof. Jesus says the exact same thing. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. So verse 9, the man is cured at once, he picks up his sleeping mat and he walks away. So why has John included this particular miracle story? Well, there's probably lots of reasons, but possibly to highlight the way in which God is bringing healing to his people through his Messiah. He wants, John wants his audience to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. And it might have called to mind Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5 to 6, which says, The eyes of the blind shall see... The ears of the deaf be opened, then the lame shall leap like a stag. And to the Jews in the first century, they'd come to associate that uh, with the Messiah. They believed the Messiah would be able to do things like 
um, giving sight to the blind, healing the deaf, and healing the paralyzed. But the story goes on. Now, that day happened to be the Sabbath, so this is Saturday, and the Jewish belief, based on the Old Testament, was that no work was to be done on the Sabbath. That's one of the Ten Commandments. In the time of Jesus, the Pharisees had ruled that that meant people couldn't do things like healings on the Sabbath, because that would violate the Sabbath, according to the Pharisees, and also carrying things was not allowed. And they based that on Jeremiah 17, verse 21 to 22, where Jeremiah is also quite critical of people who are carrying things through the city on the Sabbath day. So there was a basis for this rule that you really shouldn't be carrying things. But the fact that Jesus does the healing anyway shows that Jesus has divine authority even over the Sabbath. So it's an indicator of who Jesus' true authority is. And this is brought out more clearly in the Synoptic Gospels, where Jesus specifically says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. But verse 10, we're now introduced to a group of people called the Jews. That's what John calls them, the Jews. He doesn't mean the Jews in general. He appears to mean the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. That's just the term he uses. So we're probably dealing here with possibly some Pharisees or maybe some people from the Sanhedrin. But they come and they tell the man, because they see the man walking around with his mat, they tell him to stop carrying his mat because it's the Sabbath day. Verse 11, the man replies, But the man who cured me told me, pick up your mat and walk. So the man, when he's cured by Jesus, believes, obviously, that Jesus is sent by God. He does indeed have God's power. So he trusts Jesus' word. He picks up his mat and takes it home. Even though he knows he's probably violating the Sabbath, he's willing to trust this Jesus guy because he clearly is sent from God. So that's his explanation that he gives to the Jewish leaders. Verse 12, and the Jews want to know who it is. They say, who is this man who told you to pick up your mat and walk on the Sabbath? And in particular, it seems that they want to know who it is that's trying to do healings on the Sabbath because that's breaking the Sabbath law. And they want to discipline anyone who's breaking the Sabbath law. Verse 13, the man had no idea who it was since Jesus had disappeared into the crowd that filled that place. So we learn that at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus heals the man and then he disappears into the crowd. So in this case, Jesus doesn't want to be known. He sinks back into the crowd. Why? Well, probably because at this stage, it's too early in his ministry for him to get to be known by name in Jerusalem, because otherwise people will take him too early. So he has to be really careful every time he comes to Jerusalem that people can't identify him too easily, otherwise it will all get out of hand. Now there's a change of scene in the story. Verse 14, after a while, now that could be later in the same day, or it could be, you know, any time later in Jerusalem, and we're now in the temple. So the healed man is in the temple, probably worshipping God, thanking God for the healing that he's received. And Jesus meets the man there, and Jesus says to him, now you are well again. Be sure not to sin anymore or something worse may happen to you. That's a strange thing for Jesus to say. Pretty strong language. So Jesus here probably isn't talking about physical illness. He probably doesn't mean if you sin, then you're going to get a worse illness than what you had. He's probably talking about eternal punishment in hell. He's probably saying, if you sin, be careful that you end up in hell. 
Remember, he also does say similar things like, fear the one who can throw not just your body, but your body and your soul into hell. So it's the kind of language that Jesus would use to describe the fate that awaits people who keep sinning. And that's all he says. We don't get to hear the reply from the man. Remember, Jesus does usually associate healing with forgiveness of sins in some way. So after a lot of his healings, Jesus often reminds the person he's healed that they need to turn away from sin. So he'll say something like, go and sin no more. Remember, he says that to the woman caught in adultery as well. So at this point, it appears that in this conversation with the man, Jesus identifies himself to the man. He says, I'm Jesus. Or possibly the man just works it out, works out who he is. Because now the man goes back to the Jewish leaders, to the Sanhedrin, and tells them that Jesus is the name of the healer. That's the healer they've been looking for. His name is Jesus. Verse 16, it was because he did these things like this on the Sabbath that the Jews began to persecute Jesus. So because Jesus is healing, they're not happy. The Jewish leaders now know who this guy is. They've got their eye on him. And in particular, they're concerned about Jesus because he's claiming to be a prophet of God, to be sent by God. But then on the other hand, he's contradicting the Sabbath laws. So um, the word here for persecute, the Jews began to persecute Jesus, can also be translated prosecute. So they're trying to make a legal case against Jesus because he's breaking the Jewish law. They want Jesus out of the picture. They feel threatened by him because he's this prophet or someone who claims to be a prophet and he's contradicting the Pharisees' law. So they see him as a threat. This, in the Gospel of John, this is the point at which the conflict between Jesus and the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem begins. This is the first sign of conflict. And from here, the conflict just escalates throughout the rest of the Gospel. Now, in the very next verse, that's not in our lectionary reading today, but if you do read on in John chapter 5, the very next thing that happens is the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees escalates, and they start to plot to kill him. And the text actually says in verse 18, not only because he broke the Sabbath, but because he made himself equal with God. So initially, the reason they don't like him is because he's breaking the Sabbath laws, but then later on, They've realized that he's basically claiming to be God, and that's the reason he's killed. So, and then it just escalates further and further from there in the Gospel of John. So, where does this appear in the Catechism? It just gets a couple of brief references in two short paragraphs. So, in paragraph 583, in the section about Jesus and the temple, it says, He went there each year during his hidden life, at least for Passover. His public ministry itself was patterned by his, pilgrimage, his pilgrimages to Jerusalem for the great Jewish feasts. So in this section of the Catechism, the Catholic Church reminds us that Jesus respected the temple and he did go there to celebrate the great Jewish feasts. And it references uh, John chapter 5 here as an example. Remember, at the start of the passage, he goes to a feast, though we're not sure entirely which one it is. And then in paragraph 575, that's in this section about the relationship between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. It says many of Jesus' deeds and words constituted a sign of contradiction, but more so for the religious authorities in Jerusalem, whom the gospel according to John often simply calls the Jews, rather than for the ordinary people of God.
And so that line there about how John calls the Jewish leaders the Jews, there's a reference here to John chapter 5. And that's all we get to hear from, from the Catechism for this passage. But it's a really interesting one in terms of God's way that he sets up healings to work, particularly in terms of, you could say, sacramental theology, God using physical objects in order to heal people. And it's well worth studying. So hopefully you learned something new from this interesting passage from the Gospel of John. Thanks once again for tuning in. I'd love it if you could keep sharing this with people, uh, those who want to go a bit deeper into the Bible at this point, and hopefully they find it to be a really useful resource. I know lots of you have already said that you're finding it to be a really eye-opening way of studying the Bible and getting closer to God. 